Bibles. We're going to be in Acts 15 today. So we've been walking through this book of Acts for most of this year. Um, And so if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back in front of you or around you. And if you open up to the bookmark that's in there, it should take you to Acts or at least generally near Acts. Um, And then you can flip over to chapter 15. And so as you're turning there, I would like to thank, uh, it was really great this morning. Welcome back, Daniel, to lead in worship. Um, Daniel was, yeah, we can applaud for Daniel. Yeah, we love Daniel. Um, So Daniel uh, asked and and we were able to make it happen so that he was able to take the summer off from leading church. If you have been a part of CF for any number of time, um, you know Daniel leads faithfully all the time, always. Uh, And, you know, when I took a sabbatical last summer, I just disappeared for the summer and y'all didn't see me. Daniel took a sabbatical and then found other ways to serve our church because that's the kind of man that he is. Um, He found ways to be up in Grace Place and to still help with the soundboard and um, took that time where he wasn't leading and still poured into our church in many ways. Um, and But it's just it's so great to have him back up here. And we got through the summer because um, our church is wonderful, and especially thanks uh, to Reed and his leadership um, when we talked to, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, when we talked about Daniel stepping away for the summer, Reed was quick to jump in put together a schedule, communicate, set everybody up so that we could get through this summer. Um, and it wasn't just Reed, it was um, Mike and, and, um, and Matt and everybody that helped out. Sarah, was, I mean, everybody, the whole band jumped in and pitched in to make sure that we were able to still worship throughout the summer. But uh, And like I said, Reed did a lot of extra work to make that happen. So thank you guys. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so we're going to be in Acts 15 today. Uh, and I want to start with a little bit of a story. In, in Roman history... There's the story of a king who was actually a peasant farmer. He wasn't supposed to be a king, found his way to being king. And because of this unlikely uh, appointment, after he becomes king, he takes a bunch of rope and twine, and he basically makes a giant knot, basically a ball of rope and twine and yarn. And he makes this huge ball of rope, and it's actually on his wagon in the the, uh, castle courtyard. And it's huge. It's bigger than any normal person would be. And he makes it as a testament to the gods, saying, thank you for this uh, appointment to be king. Over time, many years pass, eventually the king dies. His son takes over, he dies. This ball of rope and twine stays out in the courtyard. And over years and years, it gets hardened by the elements. Mold gets on it, it starts to crust and, and get hard, and it just lives out in this courtyard, just this thing that is out there. Eventually, the country falls into a time where they don't have a king. There's no heir to take the throne, and they don't know what to do. And an oracle tells them, the person who can untie this knot, the person who can unravel this mess, that will be the king. And not only will they be king, but they will conquer all of Asia, says the oracle. News of this travels around the countryside and hundreds, thousands come from all over the place trying to untie this knot. It's a real sword in the stone situation. You got big, beefy soldiers trying to rip their way through. They can't do it. You have crafty thieves who are good at pickpocketing. They try and delicately undo the the ropes and follow the strands. They can't do it. You got parents who are real good at untying and tying their kids' shoelaces. They're trying to undo these knots. They can't do it. No one, it seems, can undo this knot. And all the while, the country still has no leadership, has no king. 
until eventually a man shows up in the town, a man named Alexander. And he looks over the knot and he investigates and he spends some time examining it from all different angles. And eventually what he does is he takes out his sword and he just slices that bad boy down the middle. And the whole thing comes undone. And everyone's just in shock. Did, did you break the rules? Was that allowed? Had no one thought of that? There's a rainstorm that happens, and that town was particularly fond of a certain god that, they, that was in control of the rain. And so they saw that as approval, that yes, he's been accepted as king. And Alexander would go on to not only be king, but to conquer all of Asia. And he would take on the name Alexander the Great. It's part of his legacy, his folklore. Alexander the Great undid the Gordian Knot. Today's passage in Acts 15 isn't a story, it's not folklore, but it does have a big tangled mess in it. There's a big tangled mess of confusion and chaos, and to untangle the false teaching and the misrepresentations that have happened, a sword is used. A sword that is sharper than anything else in the world, the, the sword that is living and active, it is the word of God itself that cuts through and untangles the mess we find ourselves in, in Acts 15. And that's where we're going to be today. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into Acts 15. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, to enjoy you, to celebrate you. God, as we open up your word, as we study your word here, Lord, we pray for uh, the kids of our church up in Grace Place. We pray that they would come to know you that they would be reminded once again this week that the you, who you are and how you love them and care for them. God, we pray for our Grace Place volunteers that you would give them extra energy, extra patience, extra wisdom, extra grace as they, in not only in teaching your word, but just in how they interact with the kids of this church, that they would show them who you are and how you love them. Lord, I pray for our church that you would continue to strengthen us and bind us together unite us and help us to lift one another up, to encourage one another, to build one another up as we pursue knowing you deeper and deeper. God, I pray for Holy Trinity Church just a few blocks away and Pastor Kyle, that as you continue to find ways to show them and give them avenues and insights into being able to care for the weakest among us, that they are able to find ways to build up new avenues to reach out and connect with immigrants and with refugees and finding ways to provide counseling, Lord. We pray that you would continue to bless their ministry and bless their endeavors as they seek to find those who need help and help them. God, I pray for us this morning that as we open your word, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be rebuked where needed, that you would speak to us this morning. God, this is your word. It is living and active. It cuts through everything and get reveals truth to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to comprehend, give us hearts to believe, and give us hands and feet to respond to what you have for us today. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. We'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read a big chunk, and then we'll go back and, and talk about talk about it. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, 
Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God and the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they were. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Stop there. So this morning is about untangling a mess. And so right at the top, we get what the mess is. We have some men come down from Judea to Antioch teaching circumcision is a must for anyone to be a Christian. We don't know who these guys were. We don't know exactly where they came from. But they claim they have some kind of authority to be telling people. And they are telling specifically these Gentile new believers, hey, faith in Jesus Grace alone, by faith alone, and Jesus alone, that's awesome. But also, you got to get circumcised. You still got to adhere to the rules and laws of Moses if you truly want to be part of the family of God. That was never at any point preached by Jesus or in these days of the church. And so there's a lot of conflict, a lot of chaos, and a lot of confusion over this. These Gentile believers have come to know grace. They've come to know the gospel. And now there's this other teaching coming in, and they're saying, well, time out. We didn't sign up for circumcision. We didn't sign up for the law. That's not who we are, and that's not what anyone has told us. And so with this message, it starts to get around, and so Paul and Barnabas immediately start pushing back, and in verse 2 it says they have no small dissension and debate with them, meaning they went after these false teachers, debating and pushing back and teaching them what it is that the gospel actually says. Basically, Paul and Barnabas say, no, you're wrong. This has never been the plan since Christ came, since all of this has been happening. Circumcision has never been on the table. Yes, it was a key element, a physical marker of the people of God in Judaism. 
But this isn't Judaism. This is something new. This is something different. And so there's debate and discussion and a realization that need, things need to get straightened out. Because this can be severely damaging to the church. This is a serious bait and switch that has happened. Hey, come in, grace, grace, grace. Ha-ha, now we got you, and we're putting you under the law. And so they decide Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem. They say, let's go, we'll meet with the apostles, we'll meet with the elders, let's get everybody together, let's get on the same page here. We need some clear communication about this. This could destroy the church. Christianity is growing, and there's a need for some order, there's a need for some plans, there's a need for communication, and we've seen that as things have grown, right? When it starts way back in Acts 2, and it starts, and there's Peter and the apostles, and then there's a lot, thousands are coming to know Christ, and they need to start putting in, the apostles need to start putting in deacons. They need to start putting in people to help with distributing food and doing some of the daily tasks. And then even we saw as Paul and Barnabas are traveling around starting churches, they double back and they're starting to put leadership in those churches because there needs to be some order. Our God is a God of order. And so Paul and Barnabas and a group of, and a group of others go to Jerusalem to meet with some of the leaders. They go with the group to Jerusalem. They say, let's have a meeting. Let's, let's all get on the same page. And I love the aside in verse 3 there where it says that on their way, they got this big mission, this big discussion, this huge issue they got to handle. But on their way in verse 3, they stop at some of the churches. They stop and meet other Christians, and they just start telling stories about how good God is. They start just spending time saying, we're on our way, we're going to get this covered, but let me tell you about what God's been doing in our midst and how he's bringing these Gentiles into the family of God, and there's great joy and rejoicing happening. Everyone gets to Jerusalem, finally. And while we've said over and over again, Antioch has really become uh, the hub for the Christians, right? They, it's become the central kind of meeting place and the place that's sending out Paul and Barnabas to go plant churches. It doesn't mean that Jerusalem still doesn't have some weight and importance to it. It's still the city of God. It's still where God's people are. And for many of these people, many of these guys going up to this meeting, they have these Jewish ties and backgrounds, Paul and Barnabas included. And so Jerusalem still holds that special place for them. It's, it's still home in a lot of ways for them. And so finally, everyone gets there. They're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Everyone gets together. And they get together, and it says in verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. They get together, and they talk about how good God is. Hey, I know why we're here. I know we got a big issue we got to talk through. We got some things we need to discuss. But before we do that, let's celebrate what God is doing here because God is on the move. And the whole reason that we're here is because things have grown and things are all over the place. And the gospel has gone so many different places that we need to find a better way to communicate and have some structure. And that's an awesome problem to have. They just spend time sharing stories about what God had done. See, it's important for us every once in a while because life is busy. Life moves quickly. One thing to the next. Y'all, it's like the almost the end of September. It's amazing how fast time flies. And in the wise, wise words of Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and take a look around every once in a while, you might miss it. And it's true, we need to have time where we slow down and just stop and just celebrate what God has done. It's one of the things that when we have members meetings in uh, May and November, uh, 
one of the things that I make sure that we do whenever we have a members meeting is we have time to just say, hey, let's think about these last six months since the last time we did this, and let's just celebrate what God has done in our lives. Yes, as a church, but as individuals. Let's just celebrate and talk about and be thankful for who God is and how he has brought us through another day, another couple of months. It's so important to stop and look back and not be overwhelmed by, I just got to get to tomorrow. I just got to get to the next thing. But every once in a while, take a breath and remember how God has brought you through. And so they talk about what God has, had done and how he has moved. And then in verse 5, finally, somebody says, okay, it's, it, it's time to get down to business. There are these believers who belong to the Pharisee party, meaning they were former Pharisees that become Christians or might even still have ties to the Pharisee party. And they say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These Gentiles need to be circumcised. They need to follow the law of Moses. That is how they can be welcomed into the family of God. That's how it's always been. That's how it's going to be. That's how they can become part of us. If the believers who were former Pharisees knew and believed anything, if they held on to anything, it was that they could be justified by the law. It's what their whole lives were built around. The Pharisees clung to the law. They loved the law. They did everything they could to adhere to the law. They built ways and set up rules that said, not only are we going to adhere to the law, but the way we're going to do that is stay nowhere near what the law tells us to go near. The law says, don't go anywhere near. The law says, don't eat these certain foods. So we're not even going to associate with people that eat those foods. The Pharisees were so strict, they clung to. They said, we don't know anything else. We know this. The law is what can save us. The law is what is good. God gave it to us, and it's important. See, I don't believe that these Pharisees that were standing up, they're trying to, like, alienate or keep the Gentiles out so much as, like, this is just what they knew. This is what they knew. This is how they knew to engage with God and be his followers, be his people. And so there was work clearly that still needed to be done in the hearts and minds of many of these believers. They needed to let go of their self-righteous, self-indulgent ways of viewing their relationship with God. Right? I mean, think about when, when Paul discovers the truth. Paul is on his way to Damascus, and he has that encounter with Christ. And Christ, you know, and he goes blind, and then he goes into the city. And then we saw, and we, we talked about the, the timeline, is that Paul spends about three years before he really gets into ministry. He spends three years studying and praying and relearning and unlearning a bunch of things that he thought he already knew before he could actually go and do what God had called him to do. These former Pharisees were, were doing just that. They were, they were trying to understand this idea of grace. But it's like they were being driven by one of my least favorite phrases. It's the way it's always been done. That's just how we do things because it's how it's always been done. It's never a good reason to do something. Personally, man, I will fight against, even if something is good, I'll push back against that way of thinking. Even if I agree with the thing, just, just out of principle. Just because this is the way it's been done doesn't mean it's the way it has to be. And I've said this over and over the last few weeks. We as a church cannot be the people who put hindrances and roadblocks and hurdles to people hearing the gospel, to people coming to know Christ. The church has to be a place, and the church and the Christians that are part of the church have to be people who welcome and encourage and invite people in, regardless of what they are, regardless of who they are, what their background is. We cannot be putting unnecessary requirements on people. 
But that's what they were doing here, trying to add to the gospel, trying to add what it means to be a child of God. They were still trying to understand and process this idea of grace. What does grace mean? Grace means that when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to your justified standing before God, then your performance here does not matter. Your activities, your religious requirements are not really requirements. Grace means you are getting what you don't deserve. To trade in grace for works, for law, is short-sighted, ignorant, and absurd. When we put ourselves under the law, when we put ourselves under this idea that if I'm just good enough, if my good outweighs my bad, if I just adhere to these different rules and laws, then every slip-up, every failure, every misstep is damning. But grace acknowledges, look, you're going to fail. You're going to fall short. You're going to continue to fail and fall short. But grace covers our sins, every one of them. It saves you and it welcomes you into the family of God, failures and all. It's a resting comfort that offers you acceptance. Whereas the law condemns and critiques and exhausts you. Tim Keller once said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's the song we just sang. Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. That's the gospel. That's grace. We cannot earn our salvation. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Alone, And that's what Peter is going to address. He's going to stand up and try and untangle this mess with the gospel. He stands up in verse 6. It says they debate in verse 6. They debate. They go back and forth trying to have some kind of reason, trying to have some kind of idea. And then in verse 7, Peter stands up and basically says, look, you guys, you know God called me to preach to the Gentiles. I didn't plan it. I didn't choose it. God did. But he called me to preach to these Gentiles so that they would hear by my mouth the word of the gospel and believe. And that's exactly what happened. He says, God knows the heart. God sees past all of the religious requirements. He sees past all the earthly things. He goes to the heart. And he says in verse 8, God bore witness to these Gentiles. God showed up to them. God gave them the Holy Spirit just like he gave to us. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. It doesn't matter what their background is versus our background. It doesn't matter who they are versus who we are. It doesn't matter because there is no us and them. There is no distinction. As Paul is going to write later on, there is no Jew or Gentile. In Christ, we are all the same. In Christ, we are all one unified family. Peter says, look, I was there at Pentecost. I was in that upper room when the Holy Spirit showed up. And we're speaking in tongues and we're prophesying and we're doing these things. And the Holy Spirit physically, tangibly, audibly manifested himself. I was there for that. And you know what? I was in Cornelius' house. I was with those Gentiles when the Holy Spirit did the exact same thing. I've seen it happen all over the place. Barnabas has seen it happen. Paul has seen it happen. And they share stories of exactly that. We've seen the Holy Spirit show up in the same way he showed up in that upper room to a bunch of Jewish believers. He has shown up all over the countryside to a bunch of Gentile believers. God has made no distinction. God has made no separation between us. So why should we? 
How can we, when he has cleansed them in the same way he cleansed us by grace through faith in Christ, how can we possibly stand here and say they aren't like us and they aren't part of us? And Peter asked that question in verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you opposing what God has made so very, very clear? God has clearly shown that he is including Gentiles into the family of God, that they are under grace, not under the law. Why are you putting him to the test? Why are you trying to fight him on this? Why are you doing this by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The yoke is the law. Why would you call them and try to call them to try and live under the law? The law calls for perfection. And if you're not perfect, if you don't adhere to all of it, as James says in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That's what the law expects, complete adherence, 100% of the way. And if you don't do that, you have failed and are condemned to all of it. You are guilty of committing all of it. Peter is reminding the group, justification by the law was never the plan. It was never meant to save us. It was meant to point us to something that can save us, someone who can save us, to the Messiah. The idea of perfection under the law, it can't be done. He says our forefathers couldn't do it. Our ancestors couldn't do it. Those people who we hold up as these pillars of the faith, these people that the kids in Grace Place learn about, that we learn about in Sunday school, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Daniel, David, all of them fell under the weight of the law. Not a one of them could keep it perfectly. Every one of them failed under the weight of it. Every one of us collapses under the weight of the yoke of the law. You yourselves, Peter says, can't do it, haven't been able to do it, so why in the world would you think it's okay to put somebody else under that restriction? If our ancestors couldn't do it, if we couldn't do it, why submit and subjugate others to do it? It'd be like Sisyphus saying, hey, this rock's real heavy, I can't get it up the hill, maybe it's your turn to try. It's not going to work over and over again. Why would you put them under something that can't, they can't hold up? You couldn't do it, so why should you expect them to? The law was just supposed to show us our need. Instead of subjugating them under the weight we lived in, if there's a better way, if there's a new way, why wouldn't you want them to be part of that better way? Because that's the way it's always been. Why would you want that for them? And see, that's the kicker in all of it, because every one of them gathered knew there was a better way. They knew of grace. They knew of love. They knew of forgiveness. They knew it in an experiential sense in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. They understood. Everybody at the table, even those who were saying they need to be circumcised, they, but it's salvation through grace. We can all agree on that point. So what are we even doing here? They all knew where salvation came from. They all believed the same thing. What these new believers needed to understand was that to be a Christian didn't mean you needed to become Jewish. And this call for circumcision and adherence to the law for the Gentile believers is something that the church is going to struggle through for a long, long time. Most of the New Testament is really written with this issue at the core. This idea of Jewish believers and Gentile believers having such different backgrounds, having such different experiences coming together and trying to figure out a way to how to be a family of God together. And so much of it is the Jewish believers pushing the law on the Gentiles. And that might not be a struggle for us. But what we struggle with 
is that for many of us who grew up in church, who have been doing things the same way for a long time, somebody new comes in. And somebody wants to change things. Somebody starts asking questions. Somebody starts saying, why do you do things the way you do them? And we're put off. And we're annoyed. And we're uncomfortable. And we don't want to welcome them in because it's just easier to stick with the people we know. The clean, good, lovable Christians that are easy to love and easy to connect with. And we don't want the the ones that are hard. We don't want the ones that have baggage with them. We like what we know already. We're comfortable. We don't want to stretch ourselves or make ourselves uncomfortable and have to change things and make room for these new people who do things new and and think differently and ask hard questions. We decide we have to make them work for it before we'll really let them into our world. Paul will say in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were undeserving and ill-deserving, God saved us. The same goes for every other Christian. We are all under the same grace, and those who are already established believers need to remember that and embrace that grace. Instead of trying to be the doorman at the secret club asking for a password, we need to treat the church and be like doormen at the hotel, open it wide for anybody that wants to come on in. Somebody welcomed you in, Christian. Somebody told you about the grace of the gospel. Someone showed you the way. Someone treated you like family. Someone said, come and be part. Come, I know something you need to know. I want to teach you. I want to show you. Somebody welcomed you in. Do that same thing for others. We cannot be the roadblock. When Peter finishes what he is saying, he sits down. And Paul and Barnabas start sharing their travel stories about how God had showed up amongst the Gentiles. And eventually they tag in James, the brother of Jesus. And he goes on to make basically the same point that Peter made. Trying to untangle this mess. Peter was untangling this mess using the gospel. James is going to untangle this mess using the Old Testament. James stands up knowing his audience. He's going to point them to the Old Testament to make his point. He knows he's talking to Jewish believers. He's talking to those of the Pharisees who know the the Old Testament, know the Torah backwards and forwards. And so James says, look, you want to talk about Moses, you want to talk about the law, then let's go back and talk about those things. Let's look at the prophets. What did they have to say? Those men, those people who spoke for God, let's talk about the fact that what we are seeing here with these Gentiles believing and receiving the Holy Spirit, let's talk about the fact that that's been the plan the whole time. That prophets, hundreds, thousands of years before we were sitting at this table, said this is what was going to happen. And when he said that, he didn't go on to say that when the prophets were speaking, it wasn't that God said, all right, I want you to tell them the Gentiles are going to be welcomed in, but they're going to have to become Jews. Rather, he said, no, we're just going to welcome them in. It has nothing to do with the Gentiles becoming Jewish. And so James quotes the prophet Amos, reminding them that God had promised one day to bring unity, to bring restoration to God's house. And a time in which all Gentiles will call on the name of the Lord. And James has got to look around. He reads off that quote from Amos. And he says, isn't that exactly what we're doing here? The Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit. This is what God had intended. This is what God had wanted. And so James adds his voice, going along with Peter and Paul and Barnabas, and says, I don't think we should put a burden on them. I don't think we should put these restrictions on them. But then James does make another point in verse 20. 
19, he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, meaning don't put them, don't force circumcision and the law on them, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So which is it, James? Are we going to put them under the law or are we not? Are we going to put them under the law completely or are we just going to put them under the law a little bit? That kind of seems what James is doing here, right? He said, I want them to abstain from food polluted by idols or sacrifice to idols, abstain from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Why does he pick those things? What is it about these things? Because like I said, it does kind of seem like he's putting them a little bit under the law. He just said, let's not trouble them, but we can trouble them a little. These four things that he talks about all come from, or have to do with ceremonial cleanliness laws in Leviticus 17 and 18. I know you guys love Leviticus. I know you love to go back there and study that all the time. If you haven't in a while, you should go back, read Leviticus 17 and 18, have a nice cup of chamomile with it. It'll knock you right out. It's delightful. Chapter 17 and 18 of Leviticus talk about ceremonial cleanliness and being able to worship and engage in community. The outlier of the four things that he listed is obviously is sexual immorality. Porneia is that word. It's kind of a catch-all for all forms of sex outside of marriage. Specifically here in relation to Leviticus 18, it has to do with marriages within family relations being forbidden, which is something that for Gentile believers in that part of the world was not a big deal. It wasn't even a thought. You can marry your sister, cousin. It didn't, didn't matter who it was. Everybody could marry everybody. And so that's why James says that needs to stop. The other three all have to do with food. These things had to do with social restrictions that would arise between the Gentile believers and Jewish citizens, believers and non-believers alike. The Jews had strict social and food laws that forbid them from eating food sacrificed to idols or that which had been killed and prepped in a specific or not specific way. And so how could the Gentiles and the Jews connect and build relationships if they couldn't eat together? That's basically what James is saying. Look, there are these things that we have Jewish believers, even Jewish Christians, who still adhold to these dietary restrictions. How are we going to have relationships? How are we going to have a community if we can't eat together? To share a meal with someone was intimate. It was a sign of respect and care. When Paul writes about the churches taking communion together later on, they did communion very different than how we do communion, right? We're going to do communion this morning, and we come up, and we do it individually. We take and eat, and it's part of our service. Back then, communion was a full-on meal. It was everybody gets It was like a potluck. Everybody gets together, and it's a full-on long afternoon into the evening celebration. And it was a meal because meals were love. Food was love. Food was relationship and connection. It was unifying and important. And so this call from the leaders to the Gentile believers to abstain from these things, it wasn't law. They're not saying you have to do this or you're not in. But rather, it's an encouragement that in doing these things, it will benefit your witness to non-believers and build relationships within the church. That's why James says the law, Moses has been preached in every city all over the place for hundreds of years. There are Jewish there are Jews all over the place, wherever these Gentiles, wherever the gospel is going to go, there's probably a Jewish community there. 
And we want to connect with them. We want to make inroads with them. We want to be able to have relationships with them. And if we continue to do these things, if the Gentiles don't have this inroad with them to connect, however will the church grow? The idea is to lay down your rights for the furthering of the gospel and the betterment of the community. This is a concept that we struggle with mightily. We have these collections of rights, whether instilled by the government or society or some combination of both. There are these ideas and concepts that really, when you strip everything else away, they boil down to, you can't tell me what to do, you're not the boss of me. I have rights. We as a people, especially in America, are so focused on my rights, my independence, my way of life, my, 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 me, me, me. And it's in complete conflict with the kingdom of God and the message of the gospel. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. John 15.13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Galatians 5, 13 and 14, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Over and over, this message is repeated throughout scripture. Put others ahead of yourself. Submit to one another. Lay down your life. Lay down your rights for the betterment of each other. Put others ahead of yourself. What did we see at the beginning of Acts in Acts 2.44? All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were taking care of each other. This is mine, but you need help. I'm going to give to you. Even though it's my stuff, it's my right, I can do with it what I want. I see I want to take care of you. I want to help you. Jesus showed us how this plays out in life. Paul writes about it in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Before he came to earth, Jesus existed in full and total power and glory, with total and complete authority and control. And when he came to earth, he was still totally and completely God in the flesh. That's what it says in Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. And yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This idea of a thing to be grasped is a treasure sought after, a treasure clamored for, clung to, will not stop, will stop at nothing to get it. That phrase communicates finding something valuable, and once you have it, you never let go of it. You will cling to it no matter what the situation you find yourself in. Jesus had the full and complete power and authority of God. He dwelled in heaven, reigning and ruling. And yet, even though he had this treasured position, he didn't see it as something he had to keep all to himself. It was something that he had and he was able to lay down. It would make so much sense if Jesus would have said, no. I'm not going down there. I don't want to deal with that mess. I don't want to deal with that world. They don't even have football yet. I don't want to go there. He didn't see his position as something to be grasped. 
something to be clung to because he knew that if he did that, he knew that if he stayed put, we would still all be under the wrath of God. If he didn't lay down his position, if he didn't come here, we're all in trouble and still condemned under our sin. He didn't see his role and his place as something to cling to but to let go of. We have trouble letting go of how others see us or how even we see ourselves. We cling, we grasp to the desire to be the best, to have everything be fine all of the time, to make it look like we never need any help from anyone ever. We cling to this fake concept of having it all together, the American dream, I could just pull myself up on my bootstraps, do it myself, work hard, white-knuckle it until the end. And we cling to the things of this world, the things, even physical possessions that say, I have this and it's the most important thing in my life until the next thing that makes this one outdated. Jesus saw his position, his right, his place in heaven, not as something to cling to, but something he was able to let go of. And he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. The ultimate point Paul is getting at in that passage is that Jesus coming to earth in the way he did as a human saw him set aside and not act on the privileges that he deserved because of who he was. In comparison to his complete, exalted, glorious status in heaven, being a human was the equivalent of making himself nothing. This was intentional servanthood, what Jesus did. He came not only as a human man, but as a servant. He came with no earthly power and riches. His mom was a teenager, probably couldn't read. His dad was a blue-collar kind of worker. He's poor. In the Gospels, it's not even clear whether or not he has a home. Everything he does, he does for others. He heals, he feeds, he teaches, he listens, he prays, all of that for others. Jesus, God Almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, all-righteous, all-perfect, became a human being, came to earth as a humble baby, grew up as a humble son of a carpenter, living in the middle of nowhere, spent years hanging out with a bunch of nobodies allowed himself to be arrested, beaten, abandoned, and killed. And not only killed, but killed in a public shaming, humiliating, and ugly and grotesque fashion. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus stoops, and he stoops, and he stoops. And when he reaches our level and becomes man, he still stoops, and he stoops lower and deeper yet. All of this that Christ did was in obedience to the Father. His obedience and humility, setting aside his rights and privileges, the way he considered us, the way he thought about how to serve us best and our need for a Savior and put us ahead of his own well-being. This is how Christians are to act. Self-sacrificing humility and service. The way Christ took on his role to save us from the wrath of God, even when it meant the pain and humiliation of the cross, that is how we are to care for one another. We lay down our rights so that others can know Christ. We lay down our rights so others can grow in their faith. That was Paul's main mode of evangelism as he continues on in ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9, he talks a lot about how he refuses the rights that he had as being an apostle sent by Christ, being a teacher, all of these things. He said, I'm not taking, I'm not stepping into any of those rights. I have the right to ask you for money. I'm not going to ask you for money for my service because I don't want a financial burden to be a hindrance to people knowing and believing that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and called them to new life by grace through faith in him. 
If we're going to be the lights of the world, if we're going to point people to Christ with our words and in our actions, then that means at times we have to be willing to lay down our rights, our preferences, our desires for the betterment of those around us. It is what Christ did for us and it is what we are called to do for those around us, believers and non-believers alike. And so getting back to our passage in Acts, they have this decision and they say, okay, this, let's draft up a letter. And they draft up a letter to send back with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to the, to the Gentile believers. And they say, we're not putting you under the law. They send this letter along with Paul and Barnabas. It says, you're not under the law, you're under grace. Having said that, you are called to be a light in the world. You are called to set an example and to, make, and to help make every possible road for others to know Christ as well. And so there's a way to do that. Just as we don't want you to have hindrances to get to the gospel, we don't want you to be a hindrance to others. So lay down your rights for the betterment of the community. Abstain from these things. It will go well for you. It will go well for the community. And what's the response? When they get this letter that says, you're not under, or you're not under the law, you're under grace, but we do want you to abstain. We do want you to lay down these rights. What's the, what's the response? Go down to verse 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. That's spiritual maturity. That's unity and fellowship. Encouragement and strengthening is what happens. There is a breakthrough that is happening here. For so long, the Jews saw the Gentiles as disgusting dogs. And then they're brought into the family of God through the Holy Spirit. And all the while, even throughout this chapter, they're still talked about as these others, right? They're still talked about as like this other second-class citizen. There must be special rules for them. We've got to fix them. We've got to help them be better. But now the leaders of the church see the value and importance and wonder of what God is doing. And the leaders say, you guys, you guys have been treated this one way, these second-class citizens. But that's not the case. That's not the reality. You are equal with us. You have a responsibility. Not only are you equal with us, you have a responsibility on your own. And so we're going to call you to step into some of that. Instead of trying to treat you off to this other, other class, we're going to say, no, you're part of what we're doing, and what we're doing is being lights to the world. And so we're not going to treat you as a project or some weird anomaly, but rather you're brothers and sisters, so let's all lay down our rights so that we can grow and so that the kingdom can go forward. Look, there's always going to be disagreements and discussions and debates in places where we're not going to agree 100% of the time as a church. If we're doing church community correctly, I believe it's going to be messy. Because we're going to get involved in each other's lives. We're going to get beyond the superficial, and we're going to actually get to know each other and step into the intimate, uncomfortable places in each other's lives. And as the mess starts to get messier and messier, we have to be willing to, one, stick around when things get tangled so that we can untangle them. And two, remember that we have the very best tool for untangling, and it is the gospel. Whether you hear it in the New Testament or the Old Testament, the message is the same. It's the gospel. It's the good news that God sent his son to die for us on the cross to make a way for us to give us a new relationship with him and, though, and then a new relationship with one another. Because we have experienced grace, we can be people of grace. Because we have experienced love, we can show love to one another. Because we and have had our relationship with God reconciled, we can have reconciliation with one another. 
God made you. He knows everything about you. He formed you. He created you. He knows everything about you. The good, the lovely, the delightful, the stuff you want to put on Instagram, and the horrible, deep, dark secrets that you got buried deep down that you don't want anybody to know about. God sees it, God knows it, and God still loves you. And he loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you. God made a promise, and he kept that promise. He made a promise to send one who would go to war with Satan, and he did by sending his son. And that's what Jesus did, and that's what was accomplished through the cross and through the resurrection. And God made a promise that one day Christ is coming back to restore all that is still broken, all that still needs fixing. God is going to come back and restore and redeem, and we know God keeps his promises. And in the meantime, we cling to and rely on and trust in the gospel because it makes a way for us to engage in community together so that with our words and our actions, we might point each other and point others to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we thank you, God, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, there are many of us here that know your word, have walked with you for a long time, have, God, help us to have a renewed hunger and thirst to know you deeper, a renewed passion. God, help us to rediscover the gospel every day, to re-remind ourselves of the grace, to remind ourselves of the mess we were in and the grace and the mercy that got us out of it. The joy and the love and the hope that is found in the gospel, let that, let that push us and shape us and encourage us. Let that be the guiding light. Let that be the thing that drives us in every interaction, in every relationship, in every thought, let us be driven by the gospel. God, we say it often here, you made us to be the lights of the world. You didn't give us caveats in that. You didn't give us excuses in that. You said you are the lights of the world. That's, that's what you made us to be. But God, we can't shine without you. God, help us to shine our lights brightly. Give us the boldness to be those lights in this dark world, at school and at our jobs and in our neighborhoods and in our apartments and with our families. God, help us when we have those opportunities, when we have those places where we have a choice of our preferences, our quirks, our wants, our rights. Help us to see the bigger picture. Help us to see how setting our preferences aside can be a way to point people to you. God, you have called us to be the lights of the world. We need your help to do that. We need your help to be re-reminded of the gospel daily. We need your help to lay down our rights. God, we need you. All of us, we need you more. Whatever amount of relationship, whatever, however deep we are with you right now, God, every one of us needs to get a little bit deeper. We want to be a little bit deeper because we know there's deeper to go. We know there's more of you to know. We know there's more of you to embrace and engage with. God, help us to get a little bit deeper with you. 
call on us to find rest and comfort and you, God, help us to do that. God, as we engage with one another, as we engage with the world, lead us, guide us, give us wisdom and courage and boldness. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.